Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio. I'm Justin Mogg, one of the volunteers here at the station. Delighted to be hosting this week's edition of the program on which we are going to bring you a very special conversation with Dr. Bailey Thomas uh, on Towards a More Perfect Union, Race, Failure, and Social Progress. This public class hosted by the Louisville Free Public Library last fall featured Dr. Bailey Thomas, who's an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Louisville, and it discusses how our fear of failure ultimately impedes collective efforts in working towards establishing a racially equitable society. Many people find discussions about race to be extremely fraught and divisive, which is usually expressed as a fear of saying the wrong thing. This discomfort that arises when thinking and talking about racial inequity and injustice arises from a collective social failure to be sensitive and attentive to racial privilege and oppression. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Buckle up. This is going to be a great class on race and how we talk about it with Dr. Bailey Thomas right here on Truth to Power. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Bailey Thomas. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Louisville. So I chose this topic of talking about race and social failure since it's very dear not only to my research, but also to current events that are going on right now in our society, and not just here in the United States, but also globally, especially if we pay attention to discussions about decolonialism, femicide, so on and so forth. So the title of this talk today that I'm going to present is called Towards a More Perfect Union, Race, Failure, and Social Progress. And so throughout the talk, I'm going to also weave in discussions about James Baldwin, who, if you aren't familiar with him, is a very famous social critic, novelist, essayist, and much of his work is really built on tackling this issue of social failures when it comes to race. And what I hope to argue is that when we're thinking about social failures, the problem that we have is, one, this fear and anxiety around talking about race, and two, that this anxiety then leads to a stagnation in whatever form of progress we're hoping for, primarily because oftentimes discussions about racial action tend to be focused on the individual or small-scale action. And what James Baldwin tries to argue through several of his works, particularly through the works in his later life, is that if we want to have any sort of successful notion of progress when we talk about race, particularly in the United States, it has to be collective and on a much larger level than what we've seen already. So just to give an outline of the talk, the first part I'll be sort of discussing some of the common issues that we have when it comes to talking about race and failure and why we have certain anxieties when we're talking about race, which will sort of lead into a discussion about how even speaking about race itself is deemed as a failure and something that we intuitively avoid, but what I'll argue also, right, it's not intuitive, it's not innate, we're taught to avoid these discussions. So the second part of the talk is going to focus on two examples, one, how to not talk about race, and there I'll be centering a discussion that James Baldwin has with a very famous, um, now deceased, um, conservative social critic, William Buffley, so Buckley and Baldwin um, were debating at Cambridge in 1965. It was called The Great Debate. 
So we'll talk about that in a little bit. And the second example, a more positive example, is based on a book published in 1971 called A Rap on Race. So sadly, this book is out of print, and this entails several discussions that Baldwin had with then-popular anthropologist Margaret Mead. And they're talking about race in America and what it means to be an American and also what it means to form that perfect union and what it means, again, to actually talk about a positive discussion on race. The third part is where I'll address a lot of sort of discussions about post-racial societies and how post-racial societies are deemed to be the pinnacle of progress. And with that, I'll discuss accusations of bitterness and why bitterness is not only an immoral accusation, but it's also a political one because it's used to dismiss those who have certain positions and social harms, especially those who are underrepresented voices in society and otherwise, right, don't have agency to represent themselves. And so oftentimes these accusations of bitterness are just used to dismiss them instead of actually address the problem at hand. And lastly, I'll conclude just with a little bit more of James Baldwin and this discussion of social progress. So what does it mean to move forward? And what does it mean to develop social sensitivities? And with that, I'll lean towards a notion that Baldwin talks about towards the latter half of his life, which is called witnessing. So before I begin, I just wanted to sort of provide a tip for engaging with this discussion. And this is also something that I'm going to do as well, which is lean into discomfort. These topics are hard, they can get very heated, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth pursuing. I've dedicated many years of my life to studying these issues. I teach them to students, and every day it's still hard. So all that I ask people to do is inquiry, so be curious, be open-minded. A lot of these are going to likely be things that are totally new to you. Acknowledgement means not that you have to agree with everyone, nor myself, but acknowledge the position. Think about the position. Think about the position in a way that can either affirm your current stance, so think about why it is that you currently believe what you believe, and or be open to acknowledging that there are different perspectives. And lastly, understanding is just understanding the fact that there are going to be different points of view. A lot of times when we talk about race, there are accusations of insensitivity or people getting too offended. But I want us to break past that and think critically, right? What does it mean to understand someone's point of view and understand what is it that they're trying to get at? And again, move past these accusations of bitterness, move past the way that they might be articulating it to try and get to the core meaning of what they're trying to say. And this is something that um, I'll definitely refer back to when we look at the debate between James Baldwin and William Buckley. This is something that I argue Buckley deeply, deeply failed to do. So part one, right, I'm going to talk about the sphere of failure, and especially when it comes to the problem of race and then race talk, right? What does it mean to talk about race? Why is race talk discouraged? So on and so forth. So I want to sort of open with a quote from the New York Times' review on James Baldwin's legacy. So after Baldwin passed away, the New York Times um, posted this review, I believe, around 1983, where they were sort of talking about Baldwin's legacy after he had died somewhere in the outskirts of Paris from stomach cancer at age 65 or somewhere around there. And they write, despite living through a wrenching, altogether extraordinary social revolution, he was forever tormented. Little wonder he lost his audience. 
America did what Baldwin could not. It moved forward. And part of the social revolution that they're talking about, of course, right, is the civil rights movement in the United States during the 1960s and also leading towards the Black Power movement in the early 1970s. And what I want to trouble here is this notion of America moving forward. Because what I'm going to argue through Baldwin is that when we think about the many positions that Baldwin has, particularly his social criticisms when it comes to Americans' overall neglect to think about race, and this is something that he charges non-white people of as well, when we actually think about the past, the past is never past, especially if it's still reoccurring again in the future. So why are we so reluctant to talk about race? Why is race so uncomfortable? Why is it that when I even teach a class on race and racism, I still have students who are reluctant to talk about these issues? Well, one of the reasons that this is is because of racial anxiety. And this is referring to the really effective part of discussions about race, right? Sometimes when people hear the word race, they tense up, they get anxious, they get discouraged, and they get uncomfortable. And part of that has to do with relations between power and privilege. Oftentimes, people who are within positions of privilege, right, they become defensive. Because even if the discussion is not about them particularly, if they hear the word race or even the term white supremacy, people often take it inward and think that it's an accusation against them instead of a system of domination, which is what we're really referring to when we say the words white supremacy, right? So what happens are two effects. Um, BIPOC, and this stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. So you have Black, Indigenous, and People of Color concerned, right, that when they talk about race, that they're going to be stigmatized, they're going to be discriminated against, or they're become the next hashtag. And there are many instances, right, in the media where we are often inundated, especially in social media, with instances where people are attacked, oftentimes seemingly unprovoked, or even when they try to engage with these discussions of race. And so those who are non-white tend to avoid these discussions out of fear of what will happen to them if they engage in these discussions. And on the other hand, many white people often say that they're concerned that if they talk about race, they'll be deemed the dreaded R word, which is racist. And no one wants to be called a racist. And so to avoid that label, to avoid that accusation, white people often acknowledge that they'll just shut down the conversation totally. And this even occurs in discussions about reparations, social progress when it comes to responsibility, and that's a big ask. And this is something we're going to talk about with Baldwin's discussion with Margaret Mead. Part of his discussion with her is about responsibility, especially towards social progress. And surprisingly, Baldwin implicates himself in that responsibility. So it's not just white people, but he says people of color also have a duty to work towards this racial progress. Now, how that works is a little bit different. He talks about this more in um, some essays that he published in 1963 in a book called The Fire Next Time. But nevertheless, he's going to argue that while we may have different notions or levels of responsibility, it's a collective responsibility to address a collective social failure. The next thing that I want to mention are there are various studies, and I'm happy to send a list of these to folks if they're interested, that show that when folks are engaging in any sort of interracial um, interaction, and this can be as simple as a conversation or even a large-scale debate, such as what we'll witness with Baldwin and Buckley, that you can see physical symptoms of anxiety. 
right? People might dance around, they might get antsy, they look nervous, they shift away. And that body language of anxiety can often manifest itself in a way that is confrontative, right? It might seem as if the person is being aggressive. And oftentimes what ends up happening, right, if we think that a conversation is going to go negatively, and this can even refer to issues outside of race, it usually does go negatively. We're not thinking rationally, we're not expressing ourselves well, and right, it turns into a disaster. And this is something I've even learned myself when I'm navigating classroom discussions about race and privilege. A discussion can go wrong very, very quickly if everyone is not sort of laying down ground rules on how they're going to engage with themselves. And then also, right, taking a step back from the conversation. A lot of times when people approach discussions about race, they approach it in a way that's sort of an all or nothing. So you have to have the conversation now, you have to come to a resolution, and if you don't come to a resolution, you failed. And what we have to keep in mind, right, when we're looking at these systems of societal oppression, they took years and centuries to build, and it's not going to be the case that we're going to undo them. So when we think about frustrations with um, various politicians, senators, state representatives, presidents, right, thinking that the fact, right, a presidential term is only four years, eight if you're reelected, you're not going to undo systemic racism in eight years, despite what people may promise you. And if they can, right, they deserve, you know, a Nobel Prize, because that's pretty prolific. So part of the reason that people often become discouraged by these conversations is the fact that it's not going to be immediately fixed. Even if we think of historic cases of injustice, for example, the murder of Emmett Till, if he was still alive, he would be in his late 70s. And for reference, my grandfather just passed away and he was 91. So that's not that long ago. And so in many ways, these wounds are fresh and we have to treat them as such. Again, the past is not always past. And even if it is past, it doesn't mean it's hundreds of years ago. The last thing I want to mention, right, when we look at this discussion or rather this aversion to discussions of race, people often make statements like, well, black people just don't like to talk about race or Latinx people just prefer to stay amongst themselves and not engage with others. And that language is really interesting and also problematic because it has this notion or it has the implication that those behaviors are innate, right? If you were born a person of color, then you all act the same way because you're born in that group. And what I want to propose is that when we're thinking about these avoidances to talking about race and this reluctance to really get to the nitty-gritty of racism and oppression, these are learned behaviors. So I remember growing up, my parents told me, right, there are three things you never talk about at a dinner party, religion, race, and politics. I'm sure many of you had, you know, certain advice when you're growing up, because the idea is if you talk about any of those three things, you're essentially going to cause chaos. And there are often memes that I even see every Thanksgiving, right? People talking about how they're going to ruin Thanksgiving dinner by talking about race or talking about Trump or so on and so forth. Now, while those memes are funny and the videos of the following conversations are even more hilarious, it is real. People are scared to talk about race. But the good thing is that while these behaviors are learned, that means they can be unlearned. And that resides on us getting down to why it is we're uncomfortable talking about race. And like I sort of preluded to my talk, leaning into that discomfort. Discomfort's not a bad thing. Discomfort means growth. And growth is good, especially when we're dealing with many issues that we're sort of taught to accept as normal 
or behaviors that are also normalized. So one of the other effects of this sort of um, taught avoidance of race, right, is that when we're looking at, or rather when we're thinking about the ways in which we avoid these discussions, we're not just avoiding discussions of race, but we're also avoiding talking about failure. Because at the pinnacle of all these discussions is how is it that the United States has failed so terribly when dealing with race? Why is it in textbooks scholars work so hard, historians even, to delete discussions about enslavement, native and indigenous genocide, and other forms of violent actions towards non-white racial and ethnic groups? The second issue that I'm going to discuss, and this will be more towards the end of the presentation, is that when we're thinking about this fear, ultimately the fear is not of race, but it's a fear of, again, acknowledging that it has been a collective societal failure when it comes to how we're looking at racial injustice in the United States. So there's a phrase that's often used in social justice circles, right? Silence is complicit with the oppressor. So oftentimes when people think that the best way to talk about race is to not talk about it, that only contributes to issues of injustice. And this is even something that um, is seen when, for example, the insurrection happened in January 6th. Common slogan that was thrown around by various Trump supporters was, we are the silent majority. And this idea was that even though people were actively speaking out against former President Trump, you still had a large majority of people that did support him. And many people until that date thought that because there were only a small number of outspoken Trump supporters, that his base was not actually as large as it was. And many people were shocked when they saw the insurrection and saw the mass amounts of people that not only showed up to the protests, but also then proceeded to invade the Capitol. So when we're looking at this problem of race and this problem of race talk, one thing that I want to sort of point us to when we look at James Baldwin as a model in dealing with this issue is that we have to look beyond how we think of race in terms of color. And Baldwin's going to say that racism is not just an issue of color or the treatment or different treatment in terms of people's color, but it's a moral and political issue. And part of that is based on Baldwin's belief that when we think of racial identities, especially in a Western context, they're often assigned with various hierarchies in terms of morality. So a discussion that he has quite thoroughly in The Fire Next Time deals with this when he says that the reason why white people in the United States hold so strongly to a white identity is because that white identity is built on the subjugation of other people. And if racial equality was to be achieved, then the white identity would then be in peril. Because what then, or how then, rather, could white people identify themselves or build their identity if for so long whiteness was based on being not like them? And that doesn't just refer to black people, that refers to the various racial and ethnic groups that have come into the country. And we can even see this with the history of how certain groups have become white. For example, the Jewish Italians, the Irish, so on and so forth. Historically, for a long time, white meant Anglo-Saxon. And due to what Teddy Roosevelt called the browning of America, we see certain groups then becoming white in order to create 
um, or rather to further the imbalance between those who are non-white and those who are white. And this is even something that was sustained through various forms of um, forced sterilization, particularly among Native and Indigenous women and Black women. So for example, many people would go in for a simple procedure and somehow women would come out and they had a hysterectomy without their consent. And in many ways, this was not only normalized, but this was actually legalized. And again, if folks are interested on that, I can send further information. So looking at this as a moral and political situation in need of dire intervention, now we're faced in the 21st century with an idyllic sort of um, cognition towards the past. We're eager to erase the history that took place and replace it with various images for the new generation so that they can think more positively about the United States. Because in many ways, the American identity as a whole Baldwin will argue, is not really based on just being geographically in the United States, but it's based on a particular pride, a racial pride. And so if we talk about racism in the United States, we're attacking that pride. It's then unpatriotic to talk about race. And so some of the sort of representations that are within current textbooks, right, this idea of the happy slave, the idea that slaves were well-fed, they were clothed, they were housed, and so, yeah, slavery was bad. We shouldn't own human beings, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, you know, they had sustenance. They, were, they had their needs fulfilled to some sort of level. And then we also have the myth of the natives who gave away their land. And particularly in Canada, this has become a very prominent issue among the First Nation people because many textbooks have openly said, right, the reason why the First Nations people are no longer present on that land or are no longer politically active is because they gave away their land. Now, historically, right, this is false, but due to the way in which education is run, especially in the United States, textbooks have a lot of power, especially, right, if your parent is not an academic, is not a scholar, and doesn't have, you know, access to various archives to be able to show you, okay, no, this is wrong. And various people in positions of power, such as myself, a professor, people often take us at our word. So if I say something, more often than not, my students are going to believe it. Some might, you know, argue with me, even if they have researched the answer or not. But more often, when people are in positions of power, that comes with a position of trust. And that's not just in people. That's also in objects as well, such as textbooks or other um, artifacts that are used in education. So ultimately, what effect this has is a push towards a post-racial future, a future where we no longer think about race. And this is very troubling, one, because race will always exist in some extent. And oftentimes, this idea of a post-racial future is based on this idea that we won't see race anymore. And I'm not going to get into too many discussions about colorblind theory, but part of this push towards a post-racial future, I would argue, is due to the fact that many white people don't see themselves as racialized. There are white people, and they're just white people. It's not a race. It's just a group. And then the other racialized people, right, they're black people, they're Chinese people, they're Indian people, so on and so forth. And it's quite interesting when you think about it, how other groups are racialized, but white people don't see themselves as racialized. Yet if you look in African-American philosophy, for example, scholars like Malcolm X, Audre Lorde, and James Baldwin all speak on white people as a racialized group and talk about this issue with the fact that 
because white people don't see themselves as racialized, they don't necessarily see a problem with the construction of whiteness within the United States and in a Western context broadly. So when we think about this movement towards a post-racial society, one of the effects that it has is that it doesn't address past harms. So this idea is we need to move forward, we need to forget. But it's hard to forget if you haven't addressed those previous wounds which are still festering. And to give an example of this, I want to show just a short clip of Malcolm X speaking. So just for context, this is um, right after his 90 days of silence were up, after he spoke out on JFK's assassination. He was silenced by Elijah Muhammad, who was at that time the leader of the Nation of Islam. And he's being asked about um, his comments on JFK's shooting, right? He says, it's chickens coming home to roost. And the reporter asks him whether or not he thinks that's problematic. And this is where um, the video picks up. <laughs> you feel, however, that we're making progress in, in this country? No, no, no. Now, I will never say that progress is being made. If you see the neck of my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that's below, that's a below me. And they haven't even begun to pull a knife out, much less trying to uh, heal the wound. You have you have to even admit the knife is there. That's a very poignant statement by Malcolm, and I sort of want us to sit with that for a minute. So what happens when a wound is not acknowledged, even medically speaking? It festers. It gets infected. And depending on the infection, you can die. And so that metaphor of a wound is very intentional by Malcolm. Racism is a wound. Various forms of oppression are wounds. And so while we may want to move forward, while we want progress, and everyone wants progress, people who are in oppressive situations or who are marginalized, they don't want to stay in that position. They do want progress. But the difference is progress means addressing those past wounds. And oftentimes when we think about progress, if we talk about the past, there's this assumption that we're not moving forward. But progress is not teleological. It doesn't just go in a straightforward direction. Sometimes progress can look like this, and that's fine because that's how life is. Life is complex. And there are many injustices that pretty much are being discovered every day. And it's fine that that happens, but it doesn't mean that we just move forward and not address them just because we're afraid of what the responsibilities may be in addressing them. So now I'm going to move into the second part of the talk. And again, these are going to be two examples in terms of how to not talk about race and then a more appropriate example for talking about race, which will be really helpful for us in the current era. So oftentimes, again, as I noted before, when folks think about racial criticism, particularly in the United States, and they criticize the American identity, they're accused of being unpatriotic. And a famous quote by James Baldwin is one where he says, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. So. I'm going to move into the discussion on James Baldwin and William Buckley. So again, Buckley was a very, very popular conservative pundit, um, pretty much similar to Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson of that time. And so the story of this debate is that Baldwin wanted to give an address at Cambridge University. He contacted the um, 
Cambridge Union Society, which is a debate group, and they said, we'll only let you give a talk if you will let someone respond to you who has different views. So they tried to invite various people, um, people with openly racist um, histories in terms of discussions that they've had or their verbiage, and the only person who eventually agreed just in time for the talk was William Buckley. So the resolution that they were debating that night was the American dream is um, at the expense of the American Negro. And again, Negro being a term at that time to use um, to refer to anyone who was of African descent. And so Baldwin ultimately argues that the crux of the American dream and our notion of progress within the United States is built on the subjugation of other people. When we consider the ways in which people have built mass amounts of land and wealth, it's based on various societal adjustments, not just legalized slavery, but also the genocide and theft of Native and Indigenous people. And this is something that scholars Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang speak about in a very popular essay called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And they talk about the demands of addressing colonialism in a similar way that Baldwin speaks about addressing this wound of racism. And so ultimately, Baldwin is going, or Buckley rather, is going to accuse Baldwin of just being a victim. And within that has these accusations of bitterness, which I'll discuss in the last portion of the talk. So I'm going to play just a little bit of their discussion. And I might skip around a bit because Baldwin's going to talk for a while and then Buckley will respond. Five years since two of America's most influential intellectuals faced off in a debate in England at Cambridge University's debating society, the Cambridge Union. American Negro. Good evening. Baldwin starts his speech with this idea that we can't even begin reflecting on the moral and political questions at hand without first addressing this, this question of what is one system of reality. The Mississippi of the Alabama Sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro boy or girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he holds his entire identity. Of course, for such a person, the proposition of which, which we try to discuss here tonight does not exist. There's this one kind of remarkable point in the speech where Baldwin suddenly shifts from speaking to the second person to speaking. I am stating very seriously, it is not an overstatement. I picked the cop, and I carried the rock, and I built the railroad under someone else's with for nothing. For nothing. What do you think his purpose was in making this shift? Baldwin wants to call on everyone watching that debate to recognize that white supremacy is not something in the past, it's something that's central to all of our lives and that we are all in some sense complicit in it and we all have a responsibility to fight. And he talks about the ways in which the moral lives of white people have been destroyed by this plague called color. No matter what disaster overtakes them, they have one enormous knowledge and consolation, which is like a heavenly revelation. At least they are not black. <laughs> Now I suggest that of all the terrible things that can happen to a human being, that is one of the worst. I suggest that what has happened to white Southern is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to, what, to, to Negroes there. When Baldwin ended his remarks, he received a standing ovation. Then it was Buckley's turn to take the floor. It is impossible in my judgment to deal with the indictment of Mr. Baldwin unless one is prepared to deal with him as a white man. This is a strange argument for many of us to hear, but here's what Buckley had in mind. For Buckley, part of the experience of being treated 
as a black person was to not have one's ideas taken. And so Buckley's argument was that I will treat Baldwin as a white man, and that for Buckley that meant I will take his ideas seriously, and I will call him out for the ideas that I think are dangerous. Buckley went on to describe what he saw as the causes of racial inequality in America. One uh, is the dreadful efforts to perpetuate discrimination by many individual American citizens as a result of their lack of that final and ultimate concern which some people are truly trying to agitate the other. It is as a result of the failure of the Negro community itself to make certain exertions uh, which were made by other minority groups during the American experience. Buckley is very careful to say there are individual white people. So it's not a collective problem. There are some bad apples out there, and that needs to be addressed. But then he says, really, the central problem is that African Americans aren't taking advantage of the opportunities that are available to them. At the time of the debate in early 1965, the Voting Rights Act had not yet passed, and black people in the South still faced enormous barriers at the ballot box. At one point during Buckley's remarks, an American audience member interjected. One thing you might do, Mr. Buckley, is let them vote Mississippi. I think actually what is wrong in Mississippi, sir, is not that not enough Negroes are voting, but that too many white people are, are, are voting. <laughs> the laughs, but Buckley is deadly serious about this. He's still supporting disenfranchisement of black people. He's saying, I'll also disenfranchise some white people and leave only a white elite to control the situation in the South. And he's using things like this idea of colorblind constitutionalism as a way to kind of hollow out the accomplishments of the civil rights movement. At the end of the debate, a vote was taken to determine the winner. Baldwin received 544 votes. Buckley, just 164. So I'm going to stop it there, and the um, scholar who's speaking intermittently between the clips is named Nicholas Bacola. He wrote a text called The Fire This Time, or rather, sorry, The Fire Our Time, where he's discussing this debate between Baldwin and Buckley, and he actually has a full transcription of this debate. And I do have a copy of that if anyone would like to read through it. The debate... You can find parts of it on YouTube, but the audio is really, really bad, um, which is why I actually chose this clip, because this is one of the better ones. But ultimately, one question that you'll have, right, if you um, listen to the debate in its entirety, or you read the entire dialogue, is what are the consequences of having different levels of morality attached to racial identities? So what does it mean, right, if I'm proud of being black and I enjoy my black identity and I have no problem with being black, does it then mean that I have to accept various notions of criminality and deviancy that are tied to that racial identity? And is it even fair that those, you know, various um, negative depictions of morality are even tied to that identity? I certainly didn't put them there. And this is something that Baldwin... Um, says back to Buckley in one of his retorts. So what you saw were the first sort of exchanges that they have. And this is really an important issue for Baldwin. And again, something that he's going to return to in many of his works. And this is also a topic that he discussed two years prior in The Fire Next Time. So another example of sort of a more positive example when it comes to discussions on race, and again, one that represents a real, um, not just understanding, but a mutual respect between each pundit, 
is um, a discussion, a two-day discussion that Baldwin had with Margaret Mead. And this discussion lasted over seven hours, I think it was seven and a half hours or so, and it took place on a public stage, so people were able to sit and listen to them have this discussion, and it was compiled in a text called A Rap on Race. And so what ends up um, coming up during this discussion are various issues, race, gender, different aspects of politics. They talk about capitalism a lot. That's a really interesting conversation. And again, they also talk about power and privilege. And so this discussion has been hailed, not jailed, sorry, that is a typo, hailed as one of the most positive discussions historically about race in the United States. And so there are no um, videos or even audio of this discussion, or there is, but it's on a, um, this is before my time, so I'm losing the phrase, those discs, record, record. It's on a record. <laughs> Obviously, I don't have the ability to transcribe that, so I just took a couple of snippets from it. You can tell my age there, but I didn't know the word record. So I won't read this whole exchange, um, but this is one discussion that um, Baldwin and Mead have on the melting pot and why it's actually a problematic metaphor. And so Mead says, that old image from World War I is a bad image to melt everyone down, to which Baldwin replies, because people don't want to be melted down. They resist it with all their strength. And Mead says, of course, who wants to be melted down? And Baldwin replies, melted down into what? It's a very unfortunate image. But where this takes us, I do not know. I really do not know. I can't any longer find the point of departure. Part of it is, of course, the great dispersal of Africans. But then everyone has been dispersed all over the world for one reason or another. And how out of this one arrives at any kind of sense of human unity, for a lack of a better phrase, is a very grave question and obviously would take many, many generations to answer. And so what happens after this snippet that I've pulled, they start to discuss more. Well, what does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be African? What does it mean to be white? And when we're thinking about this meaning, again, what are the political and moral connotations to these terms? And another discussion that they have a little bit um, prior to the next one, which I'll pull up when they talk about guilt, is when we're thinking about progress, we're also thinking of different terms of authority. In other words, who has the authority to determine what is progress and when that progress has even been made? And if we look at the many curators and um, historians who construct right, different legacies of history, whether they be textbooks or archives, Baldwin is going to argue predominantly it's going to be the victor. In the United States, it's going to be those of European descent. Now he's going to say, right, it doesn't matter if you call yourself Irish-American, Italian-American, French-American, British-American, etc. Once you take on that white identity, and particularly when you take on that American identity, you are then responsible for fixing the social failures within the country you now reside in. And this leads us into the second discussion from Mead and Baldwin that I want to pull. So Baldwin says, for whom the bell tolls, it means everybody's suffering is mine. And Mead replies, everybody's suffering is mine, but not everybody's murdering. And that is a very different point. I would accept everybody's sufferings, but I will not accept responsibility for what other people do because I happen to belong to that nation or that race or that religion. I do not believe in guilt by association. 
And Baldwin replies, but Margaret, I have to accept it. I have to accept it because I am a black man in the world and I am not only in America. I have a green passport and I am an American citizen. And the crimes of this republic, whether or not I am guilty of them, I am responsible for. And Meade says, but you see, I think there is a difference. I am glad I'm an American because I think we can do more harm than any other country on this earth at the moment. So I would rather be inside the country that could do the most harm. Baldwin replies in the eye of the hurricane, to which Meade agrees and says, because I think I may be able to do more good there. Then Baldwin replies, now a thousand years from now, it will not matter. That is perfectly true. And he's referring to discussions of whether or not um, a country is deemed immoral or not. A thousand years ago, it was worse. That is perfectly true. I am not responsible for that. I am responsible for now, which Meade agrees. Baldwin replies, we are responsible, and Meade finishes for the future, for the present and the future, with Baldwin saying, if we don't manage the present, there will be no future. And I pulled this section in particular because, again, it emphasizes the need for collective action to address a collective failure. Now, one thing to keep in mind, um, and this is something that Baldwin and other um, scholars in African-American political theory discuss, when we talk about addressing harm, we should keep that separate from the notion of fixing things. So if I break my phone, I can fix it, but I can only fix it to a certain extent, right? There may be certain features that will never work properly again, but I can still make it functionable. And that's sort of the way that we have to think about addressing certain issues of injustice. We may not ever be able to fully fix something. We may not ever be able to go back to a past where those injustices had not yet occurred. But that doesn't mean that this is not something worth pursuing. So one way to think about this is with the notion of incommensurability, which essentially means that there are going to be harms that I may not ever be able to address. There are going to be aspects of social life and even in the context of what it means to be an American that I may never be able to fix. But as we can see with this discussion between Meade and Baldwin, even if I can't necessarily fix it, even if I can't restore it to its original state, and even if I did not directly cause that harm, that doesn't mean that I still don't have a responsibility to fix it. Now, this is something that's often discussed when we talk about notions of white supremacy and white privilege. White people are often quick to say, why well, didn't own slaves? We know you didn't own slaves. I mean, clearly not. But have you not benefited? from the legacy of enslavement? Have you not benefited from white privilege? And that doesn't mean that you didn't earn the things you have. It doesn't mean you didn't work for it. But privilege certainly means, or rather just means simply, that there are certain aspects of power that people get that are not earned. And white privilege is something that is often hidden in society. And this is something that scholar Shannon Sullivan talks about in her book, Revealing Whiteness. And she talks particularly about white privilege operating as a habit. And many of our habits are so ingrained in us that we don't even have to think about them when we perform them. And that is one of the invisible aspects of white supremacy that Shannon Sullivan says is the most dangerous thing that we have to face. So when we're thinking about how to address these issues of racial injustice, especially if we think of different aspects of racism as habitual, again, just as it takes time to break a habit, it's going to take time to fully address these issues. 
And that doesn't even include the time it takes to get us to even be comfortable discussing these issues. So the last aspect that I want to talk is this accusation of bitterness. And so this is something that Baldwin talks about in The Fire Next Time, which is composed of two essays. One is a letter to his nephew that he wrote on the 100th anniversary of emancipation. And the second is a really interesting essay where he talks about a load of things, um, most notably a discussion that he has with Elijah Muhammad after a debate that he has with Malcolm X, which is actually um, streamed on YouTube as well. So two um, really important lessons that we get from this, again, is this idea that um, we're trapped in a history. Particularly, Baldwin says white people are trapped in a history that they don't understand. And when he's talking about this history, he's alluding to this idea, right, that in an attempt to move forward from injustice, we forget the past. But the past is never past. These injustices are still rippling into the future, but the way that they manifest themselves is different. So Baldwin is urging us to pay attention to the past, again, not to dredge up bad memories, but simply put, because we have to address it. And another interesting aspect of this text is in the dedication, he says, for James, James, and Luke James. Now, the first James is James Baldwin's grandfather, who was also named James, and that's who Baldwin is named after. The second James is his nephew, who his brother named after Baldwin, uncle. Now, Luke James is a more interesting figure. And so doing a bit of research on this, I found an article where a scholar actually traced that Luke James is the name of one of Baldwin's lovers, or rather, the one of um, the children of one of Baldwin's lovers. And that child was white. And so right there, we see that this message is not only interracial, but it's also intergenerational. So when we're talking about these harms, it's not just harms of the past, but also harms that have yet to come. Because in many ways, we're able to see this rippling, we're able to see this cycle of history, and oftentimes we're able to predict these harms before they even occur. And the way to interrupt that, Baldwin argues, is addressing it. So one major theme in the fire next time is this sort of triad between ignorance, history, and forgiveness. And this is something that is also implicated in Baldwin's discussion with Margaret Mead when he talks about responsibility. And so there's one really interesting quote um, for the first part of Baldwin's essay, and I won't read it, it's in its entirety, but he's, um, in the first part of it, he's talking about his brother, the nephew's father. And he said, and I know, which is much worse, and this is a crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen and for which neither I, nor time, nor history will forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. And the countrymen that he's referring to are other white American citizens. And again, this idea of moving on, this idea of progress, this avoidance of failure, is not one that really ends in the progress that we want, no matter which position we are on this progress in general, but it still ends up in a harm. And further in the text, which he discusses in this quote, this harm is not just addressed to, or rather is not just felt by black Americans, it's also felt by white Americans. And so in this quote, I'm going to start towards the middle. Negroes know far more about white Americans than that. 
It can almost be said, in fact, that they know about white Americans what parents know about their children. And perhaps this attitude, held in spite of what they know and have endured, helps to explain why Negroes have allowed themselves to feel so little hatred. The tendency has really been, insofar as this was possible, to dismiss white people as the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. And within that, he's talking about how, again, the notion of whiteness, particularly one that is constructed within the United States in the Western context, is one that's really built on a lack of identity. Because for Baldwin, if the white identity is based on the subjugation of others, and if without that subjugation, the identity space is blank, then white people have a crisis of identity. And so for this reason, Baldwin says, even at that time when he's writing the letter, and arguably today, we can sort of look at this tension between addressing racism and oppression within the United States, because ultimately, those who are white, or even those who have access to whiteness and may not be racially white, will ultimately have to confront an identity that is artificial, even more artificial than various conceptions of race, if people maybe believe that because race is socially constructed, it's not real. So when we think about this accusation of bitterness, one thing that I really want to hone in on is that when we make an accusation that someone is bitter, it's used to dismiss them. And so oftentimes when we hear the word bitter or even we read in an article, right, so-and-so bitterly expressed blank, it comes with a form of dismissal that is then used to characterize the person expressing that emotion, which then is used to state, well, we really shouldn't believe them or really shouldn't listen to them because they're not being objective. And so this is something that's often levied at those who are discussing issues of racial injustice, especially issues of, um, form of past racial harms. And so when we um, are looking at when these feelings are dismissed or they're ignored, this type of dismissal then leads to a form of significance in that person's life. So because they're being dismissed, that person who is being accused as being bitter then sees their life as something that's not worth really fighting for. They then not only cease discussing that cause, but they mainly cease to do so because of this accusation of bitterness, because then it leads towards a negative characteristic or a characterization of that person, which takes away from discussions of the harm that they're actually trying to address. So the power in saying that someone is bitter or these people are bitter is that if I'm in a position of power and privilege and if I'm part of the group of people that have historically oppressed a certain group of people, I can turn away the attention from me and turn away the attention from that issue by attacking their character and more importantly, attacking the way that they articulate themselves. So if I say that they're bitter or they're too angry or they're full of rage or they're incoherent, again, I'm moving the attention away from my actions to them. And I'm now saying, well, the issue is that I really can't understand what you're saying. And because you can't articulate yourself in an objective manner, I'm not going to take what you say as serious. And part of the reason that paying attention to this is so important, again, besides the political issues that I just mentioned, is when we return to thinking about various harms as a wound, like Malcolm discussed, is an accusation of bitterness even fair if we imagine that wounded person as not only wounded, 
But that wound is festering. It's been unaddressed for so long. Is it fair to dismiss people as bitter in an attempt to avoid any form of responsibility in our own actions or in historical events that we still benefit from? And that's something that is really crucial to think about. And again, ultimately, any accusation of bitterness is rooted at suggesting the failure is within the bitter person and not in the societal failure that they're trying to call attention to. So just mentioned that. So conclusion, since I know we're just at 7.34 and I want to have us end on time, one thing that I want to sort of push all of us to consider, and this is not a solution to racial injustice, I'm not going to even attempt to do that, right? But something for us to think about when we are trying to lean into this discomfort about racial injustice and to move towards a more progressive future when we're thinking about race is developing social sensitivities. And part of this, I think, we can find in Baldwin's discussion in witnessing. And so before we get there, I want to show one last short clip. It's about 30 seconds. And this is in the middle of a talk that Baldwin is giving after, um, I can't remember the year, but it's in LA. Three uh, members of the Nation of Islam had been killed by police. And so Baldwin's talking about police brutality um, in the earlier part of the clip. In my own way, in peace. I don't want to be defined by you. I think that you and I might learn a great deal from each other. If you can overcome the curtain of my color, the curtain of my color is what you use to avoid facing the facts of our common history, the facts of American life. It's easy to call me a Negro or a nigger or a promising black man, but in fact, I'm a man like you. I want to live like you. This country is mine too. I paid as much for it as you. White means that you are European still. And black means I'm African. But we both know, we both been here too long. You can't go back to Ireland or Poland or England, and I can't go back to Africa. And we will live here together, or we'll die here together. But it's not I am telling you, time is telling you. You will listen or you will perish. So no, that's not a very positive note, but part of what Baldwin is talking about in that sentiment, especially when he says listening, is witnessing. And witnessing is really something that is going to be important when we're thinking about past racial injustices, not just to acknowledge that they happen, but also acknowledge their present and future consequences. So when Baldwin is talking about witnessing, and this is something that he discusses throughout not only his social criticisms, but also in his literary works and his novels, witnessing is something that is very simple yet complex at the same time. And what it purely details is that when I am witnessing someone's pain, when I am witnessing their trauma, I'm not understanding it in a way that there's, a that there's no opacity, right? there's always going to be a form of trust that is entailed in witnessing. Because I may not truly understand what that person is going through. But when I witness their pain, I'm doing two things. First, I'm acknowledging that it happened. So I'm not going to dismiss them. I'm not going to say, well, what is it that you were doing at the time or what provoked that person? 
or did that even happen, right? Are you in the right mental state? Were you intoxicated? So on and so forth. I'm going to acknowledge that it happened and I'm going to accept that it happened. And secondly, this is going back to the importance of trust. I'm going to have to trust this person with what they're saying to be true. And I'm going to have to trust the fact that I do not need to know 100% of what they're feeling or understand what they're feeling or understand why this is a trauma to them in order for it to be an injustice. Part of trust entails opacity, an ethical opacity, which is needed. I shouldn't have to fully understand what someone is going through in order to trust that what they're saying is true and trust that it's a problem. And a lot of times when people are giving testimony, there's sort of an innate action to get every single detail we can. But what Baldwin tries to caution us away from with witnessing is doing just that. We're never going to fully be able to understand. And that's a good thing. The first step is doing that, admitting that we will never understand. But that doesn't mean that we still can't advocate for change and we still can't advocate for justice, particularly when it comes to race. And with that, I'll end with a quote that Baldwin um, gives in a novel titled Another Country. He asks, so what can we really do for each other except just love each other and be each other's witness? And haven't we got the right to hope for more so that we can really stretch into whoever we really are? And that's all the time we have for today here on Truth to Power. My name is Justin Muggs. It's been a pleasure guest hosting. You've been listening to a special class hosted by the Louisville Free Public Library in fall of 2022 with Dr. Bailey Thomas, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Louisville, discussing Towards a More Perfect Union race, failure, and social progress. That's it. We'll be back in your ears again in one week's time right here on Forward Radio. Be well, my friend.